All right, I'm going to talk to some of y'all right now. Some of you are going to look at me like I got two heads because I'm going to talk about something that some of you know about and some of you don't. Homecoming. When I say homecoming, what do you think of? Now, that could be a few different things, but I'm talking about homecoming, high school. Okay? Everybody with me? The old homecoming football game, right? And that was always followed by the ominous homecoming dance. You remember, anybody remember that? The ever enthralling homecoming dance. It's where like the girls sat in one corner and the boys sat in another corner. And every now and then somebody would get up and dance, which was weird. And everybody made fun of the people who were dancing. <clears throat> now for you guys who are homeschoolers, every day's homecoming, right? <laughs> Homestaying, I guess, not homecoming. But what would happen was, let me explain homecoming to you for those of you that aren't familiar with it. When a football team had a couple of away games, not at home, not at their home stadium, after they had a couple of away games, they'd come back home, and that was homecoming. And I actually didn't know what the uh, root of all this was, but it was actually started in college when they would invite people who had graduated back to the game to make kind of a bond between alumni and current students. And that that was really what started homecoming. But what I was used to uh, growing up was the football game, and usually there was a parade through town the day of the game, and it was a big festive thing. And And, of course, there was always a homecoming queen, right? The homecoming queen was crowned and... Home, uh, what that basically let me explain the homecoming queen thing to you too. It's basically a popularity slash beauty contest that somehow the higher ups agreed on. Let's do this. Let's let's market our students and see who can get the most votes and who's the homecoming queen. And she would have usually somebody escorting her, and everybody clap, and there were tears and oh. So homecoming was this big thing, right? And some of you are going, yeah, I've never seen that in my life. Good for you. And that's what I say. Hullabaloo is what it was, a big hullabaloo. Um, but it, w- it was a festive occasion. It was something people looked forward to. People made floats for the parade, and there was the parade, and everybody was waving like this, and everybody was happy, and they'd go to the game, and the home team would win, and the queen would be crowned, and they'd have the dance, and everybody would go home, and it was yippee, school spirit, all that kind of stuff, right? Festive event. A lot of hubbub, activity, and fun, 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 right? Enough of that. Anyway, homecoming was supposed to be fun, supposed to be celebratory, supposed to be nostalgic. And today, we're actually going to look at a homecoming type of event, but it's not really fun or celebratory at all. It's really quite the opposite. We're going to see Jesus homecoming. Anybody ever been part of a church homecoming service, by the way? Yeah, that's like people that haven't been around in a while. They invite them and say, hey, remember you used to come here Come act like you like us again. That's, that's not, yeah, we tried that once. It, not here. So it didn't work. Anyway, like two people should have. Anyway, so um, today we're going to look at Jesus' homecoming as he comes back home. And it is not fun. It is not celebratory. It's more like the homecoming I was used to at uh, church. So we're going to look at our text for the day. It's Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. And John, I've just got a big spinning thing here, so I'm going to need you to scroll through these, if you would, please. I got a thumbs up back there. That's my son. 
All right, so so we're going to start. Uh, if you would please stand as we read God's Word together, the public reading of the Word of God. Start in Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. God, this morning we come and we know that faith is a gift from you. Help us to receive the gift of faith this morning. Help us to exercise the gift of faith. And help us to not be those who disbelieve or who do not believe. Help us to not be trapped in unbelief. But give us wisdom and insight according to your wisdom, according to your insight by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're in the last part of Matthew 13. Um, and all through Matthew 13, we've talked about parables. And, but this is obviously not a parable, right? This is good old-fashioned narrative type of passage. And it tells us what Jesus did after telling the parables. And you could almost kind of scratch your head and wonder about the chapter separation here and wonder if this should be in a different chapter because it's not a parable. But I like the fact that it is included because what we're going to see is the application and the direct application of what these parables look like in action. So this tells us that after Jesus told the parables, and if you'll remember he told parables to the crowd there by the sea when he got in a boat. And he also told parables to his disciples in the house that he had came out of and then went back into in chapter 13. And why was he speaking in parables? We said he was speaking in parables. He said he was speaking in parables to hide the truths about the kingdom of heaven from those who had rejected him and to reveal those same truths to his disciples. And there were seven parables, two of which were directly explained by Jesus. He said this means this, this means this, this means this. We saw that in those parables and in, in the other five, which he did not explain directly, we saw that the in-between time period from Jesus' first coming to a second coming was going to be marked by faithful gospel ministry and consistent opposition from the evil one. It was going to be a time period where if they weren't careful, the disciples and the future citizens of the kingdom... If they weren't careful, they could become discouraged and disillusioned, feeling like maybe things were more in favor of the world and the evil one than they were firmly in the king of kings' hand and plan. Now, what we're going to see in the next two and a half chapters, so we're going to kind of set the stage for the end of chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, and the beginning of chapter 16, really about halfway through 16. We're going to see in that section there's eight accounts that show what these parables look like in action in this in-between time um, as the kingdom of heaven is being manifested on the earth. And we're going to see that it looks like just what Jesus described in his parables. Um, 
Because Jesus was preparing his men for this time period and going forward. There will be good and bad. And there will be times, it will probably feel like to them, where there's more bad than good. And again, we'll see this shown from here at the end of chapter 13 through the middle of chapter 16. And we're going to see it in real tangible examples. And here's what I want you to hear. The thing to remember is, without question... As evidenced in him teaching about it, Jesus is in complete control of what is happening. He is sovereign, he is working his plan, and his kingdom is advancing just as he said it would, just as he illustrated that it would in those seven parables. Jesus is not losing, he's not failing, even if it looks like things are not favorable for him. The king and his kingdom are right on schedule. So keep that in mind as we approach this homecoming story today. So let's get into it. Verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Now, do you remember where he had been when he was telling the parables? He was by the sea. He got into a boat. He was in Capernaum, which pretty much had been his headquarters since his public ministry had started. There in the fishing village that was the home of Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, and others, Jesus had called Capernaum home since going public with his work. And so here in verse 53, it says that after Jesus finished the seven parables we've looked at over the past three weeks, he went away from there. So he's going away from Capernaum. He's going out. He's going somewhere else. He's going basically on a short-term mission trip kind of thing. Leaving his headquarters to go somewhere and to do something particular. And where was he going? Verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? It says he came to his hometown. Now, where was his hometown? Nazareth. If you remember, when Joseph and Mary left Egypt and returned to Israel after the birth of Christ, Matthew 2, 19-23, shows us this. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Matthew says back there in Matthew 2 that Jesus and his family settled in Nazareth and that that actually fulfilled prophecy. And it was here in Nazareth in obscurity and social isolation that Jesus would grow up and Jesus would prepare himself for his ministry. And I don't know if you remembered or not, but, but Nazareth was not really a cultural hot spot, okay? Yeah, it was very much like Helen except a little bigger, okay, a little bigger now. Um, it was Nowhereville. It was uh, people that were from Nazareth were looked down upon maybe even despised from people who weren't from there. It's a small place, really. They didn't live near any lakes or rivers. They had one spring 
that supplied water for the whole town. And if you look, they're basically Israel based their cultural life between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River that ran between them. Okay, so all you know, Jerusalem was down here, Galilee was up here, and all the action, all the good cultural action was here. Nazareth was over here, and it was not near any water, not near anything. Um, they didn't have any lakes or rivers. Uh, they spoke their own peculiar dialect, which was seen as primitive. They had no major cultural attractions, and they were largely seen as immoral and irreligious. I mean, they were bumpkins. Amen, right? Amen. In John 1, 45 to 46, after Jesus calls Philip as his disciple, Philip goes and finds Nathanael. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, so this is the mindset here. Um, Philip said to him, Come and see. So did you see Nathanael's question? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the mindset. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was the pervasive view of Nazareth for the people who did not live there, and it was the pervasive view of the people who did come from there, which who were called Nazarenes. And it's here that Jesus comes to, in Matthew 13, 54, his hometown. Homecoming, right? It's homecoming time. And being a full-fledged rabbi, what does Jesus do? He teaches in their synagogue. Uh, in that time, traveling guest rabbis were always given a place of priority when they visited. And that was true here when the hometown boy came back to his obscure roots and came to their synagogue to teach. And this Jesus had reached a place of renown and was well-known all over the land of Israel and beyond as a miracle worker and a world-class teacher. Remember, they, they marveled at the authority that he spoke with. So they probably just ate up this time of visitation and teaching, didn't they? I mean, the most famous resident of Nazareth was here and was doing what he did so well there. So it was probably just great and everybody was tickled, right? Well, not exactly. It says that they were astonished. Now listen to what this word means, this word astonished. The word literally means to strike out, to expel by a blow, or to drive out or away. It's a recoiling type of astonishment. It's not a happy, happy, joy, joy type of astonishment. And what did they say? Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works And again, this is not, hey, check this guy out, he's awesome. No, it's more like, who does this guy think he is? If he'd have come to Helen, they'd have said, this feller's done God above his raisin. Yeah. This is the mindset. You think you're better than us? Now that you're big and famous, you think you're better than us? Don't you? It's disdain, it's contempt. But why? Why? Well, it could be that they're Nazarenes. I mean, that, that could be it. But this didn't just come out of left field. A year or so earlier, Jesus had visited Nazareth in his journeys, and this happened. Look at Luke four sixteen through 30. That's a little lengthy, but we're going to read it all because it's important. And he came to Nazareth. Now, again, this is a year prior where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Now listen to this. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So here, near the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus announces to his hometown folks that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah. And not only do they dismiss him, they're full of wrath. And they try to kill him by pushing him off a cliff, which was something they did. Take him to the cliff. I mean, that was kind of the thing. You know, the cliff. Yeah, we'll go to the cliff. Which kind of tells you their mindset, right? Now, with that in mind, come back to today's passage. My first question is this. Why did he come back? Why in the world would he come back to this hole in the wall anyway? Maybe he was hoping... To sweep in and start revival. Well, he was facing an uphill battle, if so. Look at verses 55 and 56. This is, the, this is back in today's passage, a year later from the one we just read. And this is still the reaction of the Nazarenes. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Jesus? Great teacher? Miracle worker? Whatever, they say. His daddy was a carpenter. He's a carpenter's son. Nothing special about a carpenter's son. Coal miner's son. The word carpenter is tecton. And it means one who builds with hard materials. Could have been wood, could have been stone, whatever. Nothing special about carpenters. They just did grunt work. And as a carpenter's son, guess what kind of work Jesus would have done while he was in Nazareth? He was a carpenter. This ain't no big, famous, religious guy. He's just a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. And his mom, Mary. I mean, Mary. Not Miriam. Mary, Mary, we all know Mary, she's just Mary. This is Mary's boy. Who does he think he is? We know his brothers too, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. They're just ordinary folk like us. And his sisters are here with us. Just Nazarene girls, no big deal. 
So where did this man get all these things? Who does he think he is? Ooh, big time teacher, right? Where does he get off coming here with all this religious mumbo jumbo? Him and his family are just like us. He's not special. So where did he get all these things? Who does he think he is? And then this, verse 57. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. They took offense at him. That phrase means that they saw in him what they disapproved of and they saw in him what hinders them from acknowledging his authority. The phrase can refer to the feeling one gets when their foot gets entangled and they feel annoyed. Ever get your foot stuck in something and you're hopping along trying to get out of it? That's this mindset of offense. like your foot caught in a trap and it's getting on your nerves. That's how they felt toward Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh. They were just put off by him, annoyed by who they thought he thought he was. Jesus spoke and they just sneered and jeered, incredulous that one of their own might actually be who he said he was. They hadn't believed or heeded when he had said he was the Messiah the year before, and they don't have any more faith now than they had had then. They just found him to be an annoying know-it-all. You ain't no better than us. And you know, that that's it, isn't it? Who in the world does this guy get off Who does he think he is? How does he get off telling me what's right and wrong? Where in the world does this God get off determining what has to happen for people to be saved? Sound familiar? It's the classic sinful man rebellion toward anything remotely resembling authority. Especially God's authority. Listen to me, all of us. All of us in our natural depraved state cannot abide the concept of one who actually can condemn or correct. We hate authority in and of ourselves. And to think that there's one God who can determine what's right and wrong for everybody, we hate that deep in our hearts. And that's exactly what we're seeing from these people in Nazareth. Don't tell me you can correct or rebuke me. They took offense at him. His hometown, the folks he grew up with, the folks he played tag with, the folks whose houses he worked on as a carpenter. Don't tell me you know what's going on. You're just like me. Oh no, poor Jesus, right? He must have been crushed. Sad, lips stuck out, tail between his legs, walking out of town. No. Note the next word, but. They took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, Jesus isn't weeping or decrying their outright rejection of him. No, he, is, he directly confronts them and says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. Now what's that mean? It was actually a common proverb at that time. It was a thought that nobody from where you were from could have a valid professional opinion. The truly great ones, the experts, had to come from somewhere else. And it's still true, right? We think, yeah. The important people, the people who really know things, who can really say things, have to be experts. 
They have to come from somewhere else, from the big places, the important places. Not here in Nazareth. Not, not from Helen. Not West Virginia. Nobody and nothing important comes from or happens here. That's what they're saying. And we know you too well to know that you're far from perfect, even though he was perfect. We know your faults and your flaws. We know your shortcomings. You're just like us, so no honor for you from us. And Jesus says, basically, I know this is how you think. I know you can't get past yourself to see the truth about me, and I know that that's how things are here in my hometown amongst my people. And what had he said in these parables? It's this. Some of the ground is hard, and the seed gets stolen. Some of the ground is stony, and it doesn't produce fruit. Some of the ground has thorns on it, and it chokes out the plant so that they don't bear fruit. It's not like Jesus is going, oh no. I've got the perfect message, and they're not receiving it. He had announced to his disciples that this was going to happen. He knew how they thought. He knew that they tried to push him off a cliff a year before. And he went back and he preached again. And in John 1.11 it says this, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus knew this and he did not shy away from it. He remembered that they tried to push him off a cliff and he went back there. He knew that they weren't going to receive what he said. And he went back there. Why? It's actually a necessary part of his life and his ministry. Isaiah 53, 1-3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. One of the qualifiers of the Messiah was that he would be despised, rejected, and not esteemed by men. And this surely applied to Jesus and applied directly to Jesus in this account of Jesus in Nazareth. And Jesus was not surprised. Quite conversely, he addresses it and even embraces it, knowing that it is accomplishing God's plan and furthering his own ministry. And the passage today finishes with this, verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now stay with me here. Now here's Jesus, this mighty miracle worker, this Messiah, doing the deeds of God in his incarnation, in the place of his upbringing, being scoffed at and dismissed as somebody who's gotten too big for his britches. And how does he respond? Now, he could have called for the wrath of God to be poured out on these unbelievers, these haters, or he could have just stood up and made them see his glory by commanding the natural realm to bend to his will. But instead, he does something else. Or more accurately, he does nothing else. He responded by not showing his divinity. 
And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Since they did not believe, he did not do many mighty works there. Let's look at Mark's account of this. This is Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Mark 6, 1 through 6. This is Mark telling the same story that we just read. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now this, that's a little different wording, right? It says in verse 5 that he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So which is it? Did he do no mighty works or could he do no mighty works? Stay with me. Was Jesus rendered powerless by these unbelieving Nazarenes? Is God limited by our belief, our faith? That's worth exploring. But let's be clear here. Jesus not doing mighty works among them is judgment. It's not inability. Since they didn't believe, he didn't do many mighty works. Some would say that Jesus couldn't do mighty works there. And that's not the same wording that Mark has actually. He could do no mighty works. It's not that he was powerless. It's not that he was powerless and couldn't do mighty works. To that we say, Peshaw. God is not, listen to me, God is not, and therefore Jesus is not, limited in himself by our faith or lack of it. Let Let me say that again. God is not, and therefore Jesus is not, the Holy Spirit is not, limited by our faith or our lack of it. In the same way that Jesus wasn't thwarted by the evil one snatching some seeds away or planting his children in Jesus' field, he's also not restrained by whether you or I or anyone else doesn't trust or believe in him perfectly or imperfectly. Let me be clear here. There are consequences to our lack of faith, to our unbelieving, but they affect us, not God. God's plan is going to be accomplished. God is going to be glorified and all that the Father gives the Son will come to Him. Regardless of whether Nazareth or Beckley or New York City or Jerusalem or any other city lines up with Him or not. And yes, the person or city that doesn't line up with Jesus will either suffer the consequences or simply miss the blessing. But listen to me, the sovereign, omnipotent God does not suffer defeat. Ever. And He's not limited or weakened in any way, shape, or form by anything that we do or don't do, regardless of whether we are His or not. And so, these unbelieving Petulant Nazarenes did not hamper or hinder Jesus in his life or ministry. 
And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Their loss. His plan. That's a lot to process. But we're at the place where actually we're going to process this. We're going to turn our attention to application. And I didn't alliterate this week. I just didn't. I just didn't. R-U-J. That's the, that's the letters. Rejection. Unbelief. And Jesus. Rejection. Unbelief. Jesus. That's our application points today. And the first one is Rejection. According to the parables, according to what we saw in today's account, listen to me. Rejection is part of God's plan. Some people are going to reject Christ. Some people are going to reject the gospel. Some people are going to outrightly reject God himself. So what? So what I'm saying is, as you live your life to exemplify and glorify God, some people are going to reject you. Oh, no. Rejection? I'm going to be rejected by people? Yes. Listen to this. Sometimes you're going to present the gospel to somebody and they're going to reject it. That's going to happen. Is God defeated in those moments? No. Is the power of God not flowing in its fullness? No. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So when you present the gospel, all the power of God is there. And people say no sometimes. People reject sometimes. And often... Just like we see here with Jesus, it's your own family. It's those closest to you. Does that mean we don't care? Absolutely not. Jesus went back there after they tried to kill him. He cares. And he doesn't stop. And so what I'm telling you here in this application point is, people will reject you. Don't stop. People will reject the gospel when you preach it. Don't stop preaching it. Don't stop preaching it to that person. In your hometown, in your own household, there's never any reason to stop preaching the gospel just because somebody rejects it. John 15, 18 through 21, Jesus said this to his disciples. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus told him flat out, you're going to be rejected. Why are you going to be rejected? Because they rejected me. If they believe my word, they'll believe your word. If they don't believe your word, they didn't believe my word either. And this is part of the plan. Now, am I okay with that? Am I okay with the fact that some people will reject the gospel? No, it should break our hearts. 
And we've got to look at it and say, this is part of the plan. But this is what I would want to encourage you with. In the midst of rejection, you never know what God is doing as you faithfully preach his gospel. The Bible tells us that Jesus' brothers didn't even believe in him. They rejected him for a while. But look at Acts 1, 13 through 14. As the church was getting ready to be born, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Well, looky, looky. Rejection now doesn't mean ultimate denial. Jesus went back to Nazareth to keep planting seeds. And he knew that a lot of them were going to be snatched away. But he knew some of them were not going to be snatched away. Mom was listening. Mom was treasuring these things in her heart, the scripture says. The brothers were going, this guy, he's driving me nuts. I, you know, Big brother thinks he's big and bad. And then the Holy Spirit got a hold of him after he was resurrected. But those gospel seeds had been sown in their hearts and God brought forth increase. Rejection now doesn't mean ultimate denial. Walk through rejection. Pray through rejection. Preach through rejection. And wait and see what God will do. We don't know, but He does. So you will be rejected and you keep on doing what you're doing. They'll try to throw you off the cliff. Come back a year or so later. See what happens. Don't do that. I don't know. That's, that's it between you and God. So that's rejection. Don't let rejection stop you. Keep preaching. Keep praying. Keep working with God. Keep gospeling through rejection. That's point one. Second point is unbelief. This is really what this passage is about. This is really the theme of this passage. It's unbelief. And what we see in the life of the Nazarenes are the consequences of unbelief. Jesus was in their midst. Jesus was preaching. Jesus was speaking. And they were offended by him. They took offense at him. And listen to me. That is the consequence of unbelief in the life of unbelievers. They're going to take offense at the truth. They're going to reject the truth. They're going to oppose the truth. And that unbelief is going to keep them from God. Now here's my question for us. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer, what role does unbelief play in your life? Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let me tell you what I'm not about to do. I'm not about to tell you, well, if you'll just believe, God will do what you want Him to do. That's not true. But I am going to say this. You better discipline yourself and we better discipline each other over unbelief. Because we will miss the blessings of God if we don't believe Him. When consequences come, when things are hard, when the situation doesn't make sense to us, don't stop believing God. Believe Him. Believe that Romans 8.28 is still true. 
Believe that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because it's still true now. What if my feelings tell me something different? Oh, don't trust your feelings. They're more fickle than your thoughts are. And unbelief robs you of God's blessing in the midst of your situation. He's working. He is causing all things to work together for your good. And if you don't understand that and you don't believe that, you're going to miss it in the moment. And you're not going to have eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing, what God is saying in the moment. Don't miss the blessing of the suffering because you don't believe God because suffering means that God's unhappy with me. It's not true at all. Unbelief robs us of the blessing, of understanding and seeing and living the full blessing of God in our situation. Unbelief robs us of God's blessing and understanding it in our as believers, and unbelief keeps unbelievers from God. Hebrews 3, 12 through 19. This is a stern warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Perseverance is a sign of salvation, by the way. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, put this passage in the context of the Exodus. You reckon they saw God do anything neat during that 40-year period? You reckon there were hard times? Questionable times? Yeah. And through it all, some people did not believe. And they missed the blessing of God. They fell away. And Romans 9, Romans 10 tells us they were never really believers. First John tells us the same thing. They went out from us because they were never really of us. And so here the writer of Hebrews says to those who are reading his epistle, take care lest your heart be shown to be an unbelieving heart. Take care lest you be one who falls away because of unbelief. And so what's the, what, what's the application for us? He tells us, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, now, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin leads us to unbelief. And unbelief leads us to sin. And that becomes a cycle that just perpetuates itself over and over and over and over and over again. I sin so I don't believe. I don't believe so I sin. Exhort one another. If you see sin in my life, exhort me. If I see sin in your life, I should be exhorting you. Why? To keep you from unbelief. To keep me from unbelief. Because unbelief will lead me to fall away. And falling away shows that I was never really Christ's. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief belief they saw the works and they still didn't believe so exhort one another so that unbelief 
doesn't become a habit and a pattern with us. Rejection, unbelief, and the final application point is Jesus. Now, what kind of application point is that? That's right, it's everything. All of this, everything we've talked about, all this comes down to one thing. What are you going to do with Jesus? Not us collectively. What are you individually, every person sitting in this building this morning, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to reject Him? Are you going to scoff at Him? Are you going to take offense at Him? Are you going to not believe Him? Or will you recognize the truth of who He is and worship Him? Because that's your really, really the only two options that you have. Either you don't believe Him or you worship Him. That's it. There's no middle ground. There's not, I'll put it on a shelf and think about it later and everything will be okay. He was not a good moral teacher who can teach us some basic principles of how to treat other people. He was God in the flesh. And we celebrate just exactly what David read this morning, the past, present, and future ramifications of what his death means for us when we come to the table. And we remember and we proclaim. And what are we remembering and proclaiming? Who Jesus is. What Jesus did. This is the litmus test of salvation. What you do with Jesus, you individually today, what you do with Jesus determines your eternity. What you do with Jesus today determines your eternity. You say, well, I don't understand everything. You don't have to understand everything. You say, well, it would be good to. Well, sorry. I don't understand everything either. These disciples didn't understand everything either. But they saw Jesus. And they heard Jesus. And they watched Jesus work. And they said, this is the Messiah. And they questioned Jesus. And they deserted Jesus at one point. And then they saw him alive again. They're like, this is the Messiah. Who do men say that I am? Jesus will ask the disciples later. And then finally he zeroes it in and he asks them this. Who do you say that I am? I think it's very important that right now in this moment you ask yourself the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And the answer to that question is going to determine your eternity. Who is sufficient for these things? Not me, not you. But by the power of the Holy Spirit of God and the gift of faith that He brings, we can put our faith, our hope, our trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus did and we can be born again. And if we are born again, we can be strengthened and encouraged to know that Jesus cannot, will not ever fail. 
bad things happen in your life. You think maybe Jesus is hindered. You think maybe Jesus is, the devil's winning. No, he's not. Jesus cannot and will not lose. Jesus cannot, he will not falter. Jesus cannot, he will not fail. So whatever situation that you're in, you've got to ask yourself again, who is Jesus? Who is this King of glory? Who is He really? Who do you say that Jesus is? Finish in Romans 10, verses 5 through 15. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? (laughs) The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's pretty good news. For with the heart... One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him, in who? In Jesus. For everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be Save, but don't stop there. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There is one hope for the world and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you preach that gospel through rejection. You preach that gospel even through your own unbelief and through the unbelief of other people. And that gospel is centered around the work of Jesus Christ, the same Jesus that these Nazarenes took offense at, the same Jesus that the world will now take offense at. And you know what? He's winning, He's not losing. He's not overwhelmed. He hasn't gone to sleep and is letting things get out of control. Since he was walking there in Nazareth and they rejected him, he knew that some seed would fall on stony ground. Some seed would fall along the path. Some seed would fall among thorns. But some seed would fall in good soil and produce fruit, some 100, some 60, some 30 fold. And it's the same today. So we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to overcome anybody's unbelief. And people will reject us. People will reject the gospel. And Jesus is winning. He wins the homecoming game. Even when it looks like he was rejected. He knew what he was doing. He announced that it would happen. And we draw strength and courage from that knowing. He wrote it all beforehand. We've read the end of the book. And Jesus wins. The parade, the float, the crowning is all about him. It's not about goofy high school festivities.
Jesus wins. Let's pray. God, we say with the the man in Scripture, we believe but help our unbelief. I do doubt. I do wonder. I do gravitate toward anxiety and fear and depression and sadness and hopelessness. I do cower when people reject what I offer them through the gospel. And I teeter upon unbelief every day of my life. God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show us Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, so that when we doubt, when we're rejected, when we disbelieve that our faith would be in who he is and what he's done and that you would be glorified in our lives as a result of it. Who is this king of glory that pursues me with his love and haunts me with each hearing of his softly spoken word? My conscience a reminder of forgiveness that I need. Who is this King of glory who offers it to me? His name is Jesus, the Lord Almighty, the King of my heart, the King of glory. Father, we would see Jesus. Show him to us in all of his splendor and majesty. We ask it in his name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Here's-